Okay, here we go. Welcome to the Assembly of Silence Radio Hour. Okay, so I had said that I was going to take this episode and put it behind the Patreon paywall, but I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to put it out there because that was the decision I made. And I don't really know why I decided that. It just seemed like the right thing to do. So this will be the conversation that preceded the previous episode. And you could kind of think of that as being somewhat like the format that we see so often in the movies where you're kind of going along a timeline, all of a sudden it gets interrupted and you're going back, except this is not all of a sudden because it's a separate episode. And also, it's a long format that's about ideas, and so it's sort of the opposite of a movie, which is a compressed format that's about emotional manipulation. So, there you go. That's the introduction. If you want to support the podcast... Patreon.com slash Taiji Reality. Enjoy. Yes, okay, so what are we doing today? Well, we had our conversation about free will and we got into various topics, um, one of which being kind of the split or the differences between the physical and the spiritual self. And then you also brought in soul, which we didn't really go into too much, but I'd be interested to ask you about and and basically i think you were going to use this as kind of like a follow-up to that conversation Mm -hmm. okay i I listened to your our conversation a couple times and i just listened to it again and i i came i was thinking i was going to come to this with a you know a certain list of questions which i feel like actually listening to it again answered all of them it's you know it's hard to pick those things up necessarily the when you're having the conversation or even the first time you listen to it but mm-hmm. and so i guess i guess um i feel pretty clear on how you think about free will though i do want to get i still do want to get into those various parts so there's the um we talked about the physical kind of being the I don't know, like the tool of the spiritual, or at least connected to the spiritual, and at it, the spiritual sends it signals which it receives, and then it also picks up the body. The physical picks up things from the physical world and sends that back to the spiritual body. Is that kind of how you were describing it? Well, you know, the thing about it is that it's one thing to talk about it from a subjective point of view where you're talking about an experiencer and what's happening to the experiencer. And I think that that's a good model if you're going to look at it that way, because each of us knows that, okay, you wake up into this world, you have a body. It has a variety of sensations, internal and external, which you interpret in various ways through your your cognitive and emotional mechanisms, and that there's an experiencer who is dramatically involved in that process. And it appears that the world that we're in consists of physical objects. So you can call that the physical space, and I think that that's perfectly fine, but I also think that it's quite possible, as I outline in that paper and as a number of other people, it's kind of this panpsychism type of way of looking at things, that when it really comes down to it, we're talking about networks of conscious beings. And so that there is no like, quote unquote, physical space. There's just a 
domain of experience for each being that's in this kind of web of conscious beings. I mean, physics is a, is a really problematic idea. Like even within physics, there's some sort of a issue about where the stuff is, like what the, what is the matter? Mm-hmm. You know, the, on, a, on an atomic scale, you have incredible distances within the atom that are essentially, quote unquote, empty. And so, you know, things are made up of mostly nothing is, is basically the way that even the physics community sees it to some extent. So, so what is this thing that does actually exist? <laughs> I mean, the irony of, of the whole thing is at kind of as usual, the incredible inversion of conception. So we have had a tendency as a materialist culture to think of the thing that only truly exists as being the physical domain of objects, solidity, things that are real, and have kind of poo-pooed the idea that consciousness and spirit and all that stuff is real. But it may turn out that it's more realistic to think of the ground of being, the experience, as being the thing that we know is truly real, and that the arrangements that make up the physical world are essentially built from that, uh, mm-hmm. because there is a problem when it comes to putting your finger on what it is that makes the physical world physical. So essentially, I think you would say that what is fundamentally true is experience itself, and that experience, that the physical world is a result of the world of experience. I think so, right? but I don't think I could say that I that that's true. Do you know what I mean? Like, it makes sense to me, but I can't say that it's true. I don't know. I mean, the physical so world you, is obviously just, real. So, you know, the, the objects around us have a very vivid reality to them, and I don't want to in any way suggest that they don't. Uh, it's yeah. just that as we try to penetrate into what they are actually composed of, we start to mm-hmm. get more and more... Um, it gets more and more confusing, you know, such that t- to the point where we have a picture of the quantum reality that in essence doesn't make any sense. I think, you know, Richard Feynman said something like, if you think you understand quantum mechanics, then you don't, <laughs> you know, it's, that basically w- what what it's telling us and, you know, whether or not it's actually true is another story. But the message that we're getting as we probe those um, ever smaller domains is that things are just, they just don't, it's not at all like what we seem to be, uh, perceiving in our day-to-day life. Right. It seems very substantial to us in the experiential realm. Yes. So it seems like based, based from your articles that I, uh, that you wrote on a red, that basically you would say the world of the experiencer inputs, you know, it, it receives what's going on in the external, in quotes, world. And then it is able to send energy into that external world with the goal of initiating some change, which it desires. And that energy is what makes up 
the physical world. Like all all existing physical things are a result of all previous wishings of things to be a certain way. Yeah. Is that, is that right? Yeah, I think that's that's a pretty good way to summarize it. You know, I'd say that that what we're getting is our messages of what's going on. It's not we're not really getting what's going on. We're getting messages. We have sensory apparatus that operates within some bandwidth and uh and the messages are uh, extremely complex and quite often we miss a good portion of them. And so we're not really getting a picture of what's going on. We're getting messages about what's going on. You know, it's a very, it's a fine distinction, but basically, yeah, I completely agree with that. Uh, and again, I, I'd say it makes sense to me, but I wouldn't say that it's true. I don't know yeah, how to I, actually prove it. Yeah. I don't think it's provable, <laughs> but it makes a lot of sense to me. An incredible number of things fall into place when you start to look at things in those terms. And it's not like this is a new way of looking at things. I, I think there's a, a long tradition of, uh, of this kind of, you might say, spiritually oriented ontology. And uh, it, it's not just in the East or the West, both, you know, there are traditions on, uh, on all sides, you might say that have this notion of consciousness as being fundamental. And, you know, even within the scientific world, I think Max Planck basically said exactly the same thing that, that yeah. And even Sam Harris essentially, yeah, Sam Harris basically of, says it's the only reason that anything matters. It's like, okay, well, it sounds like you're saying it's primary then. I know, and it, it's kind of bizarre that that he doesn't see free will as being an agent here. You know, it's just that yeah. that's he just seems thinks to me that to consciousness be. has no impact. It's just it's just the flowing of what some separate world, which actually is doing all the you know deciding, is making it feel like it's just. It's like just floating on an ocean. It has no control over what's happening yet. It just seems like it's the only thing that actually is. So how can we, why are we giving this imaginary physical world priority over it? Well, I don't think that saying that the physical world is imaginary is correct because the network between conscious nodes is real. So the conscious nodes are convinced of their uh, separateness and they are operating within their own domain. It takes an awful lot to convince a consciousness that it's not separate. And even if you do convince it of that fact, it's very difficult for it to live as if that were the case. <laughs> you know, basically yeah, I mean, it doesn't feel that way. No, it doesn't no feel that way thinks. at all. So the, the actual experience is that we are separate nodes of consciousness, you know, and mm -hmm. you can talk as much as you want about how we're all one. But, you know, and, and it's like maybe that's true on some level. But come on. I mean, really, we are all uh individuated senses of being mm -hmm. that's that's what it really that's what it feels like that's what it, it, it the experience of existence is mm -hmm. in, in some sense it couldn't be any other way because if we were all one then we'd be undifferentiated without differentiation there would be nothing to experience so mm -hmm. it kind of has to be this way and yeah i think that that the harris idea it's almost like he's just really disappointed that he can't get the outcomes that he wants. And so he's just trashing the whole idea that we have any influence on the frame at all. I think, mm -hmm. you know, the problem is that, yeah, we actually do have an influence on what occurs within, let's call it the physical domain, just to make it simple. 
The problem is that it doesn't tend to work out as we intend, but intent is yep. an in entirely different thing than free will, yep. right? Free will is the capacity to choose. It's the idea that we can operate as an independent agent. Now, whether we're an agent of chaos or an agent of order or some mix, or if we have any capacity to follow through and see things to the end in the way that we had originally intended them, that's in a completely different question. And it's an interesting question, mm -hmm. but I don't think it's related to free will. And I don't think it's worth being disappointed if, if you feel that things don't work out the way you want them to. I, I love the quote that says, you know, if you want to hear God laugh, tell him your plans. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's an outrageously complex world. You know, existence mm -hmm. is not it may be uh, made of somewhat simple components, but it's not a simple uh, thing to exist. You know, it's mm -hmm. a simplex situation, I guess, to talk about it in terms of, you know, the way Ken Wheeler talks about it. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's something that can be mastered. You know, we are mm -hmm. humble and, and uh, very limited in our power to yeah. to really influence things yeah it's like we're uh, we're an individual node of i mean this is just some a way of thinking about it, an, an individual node of basically god experiencing the universe and and i think people realize that type of thing and they get kind of a big head about it but when you think about it you're about as low as the low you know the lowest i mean you're as is as insignificant as anything else because everything else is God playing a role as well. And so there's nothing really special about you. Well, I guess that's also an arguable point. And I've, I've done a lot of thinking about that and I'm not sure exactly where I come down on it, but I do think that there are levels that go way lower, you know, that, that on some level we're given a facility that not all nodes of consciousness have. So that mm. reflexive ability to be able to, to, um, consider what one is doing. You know, it seems as if that's not something that all conscious nodes are capable of doing. Do you think that that element is required for free will? That's a great question. I, I think so. I mean, how could you make a decision other than the one that you were kind of programmed to make if you don't have free will? <laughs> So you well, have it seems to like be the able. choice could still be making the choice could still be making being made. I mean, a fish simply has a system which gives us it less information. Right. And the only information that it has is basically that it wants to eat that worm on the hook. But but it, it seems like it still could be making a free will choice, like whatever free will is that could be still existing there. It just doesn't have any information. And so it's choice is extremely predictable. And for a human, it's just much more complex. A fish is a relatively high-level organism. You know, they're, they are pretty complex. They've got a lot of different parts. They're able to uh, sense and respond in many, many different ways. So I think that, you know, maybe when we start talking about bacteria or something like that or, or worms, mm -hmm. uh, or maybe if we're going to go the panpsychism route to talk about atoms, you know, it seems like atoms, they, they basically respond the way they respond, you know, is there a free choice within an atom? I don't know. I mean, that to some extent might account for the random distribution of things, you know, sometimes there's like a, a, um, 
a percentage of times that things will behave in one way. Yeah. And so there's there's a lot of variation. But in essence, it seems that the atom has a very circumscribed set of behaviors. And you might say that the same with molecules. Yeah, one an electron, an electron might, you know, act very predictably the same in all the other electrons around it. But there's the chance like a one in 500 billion trillion chance that it's going to show up on Mars instead of within this wire that you had it rolling around in. So there, it is almost certainly going to do something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, clearly, like we rely on there being predictable behavior in order to develop technology. So the fact that mm -hmm. the electrons are behaving far and above way more reliably than they don't, you know, it says something about the nature of an electron, if such a thing does actually exist. But yeah, you know, you could say that inherent within the conscious potential is this reflexive property that can be exercised mm -hmm. to varying degrees. I mean, we see that within humanity, which has this, you know, self-consciousness, you know, it's, what, it's one of the confusing aspects of, of the words that I think is really important to delineate. Like you have consciousness and then you have conscious of, right? You know, so, you know, we really should have a bunch of different terms, I think. But the, in consciousness, I think of as being the capacity to sense and respond through an agent of an experiencer. So a, a mm -hmm. being that experiences is basically a node of consciousness. And then self-consciousness is the awareness of what one is doing, of what one is thinking. And so humans obviously have that potential, but we see that within our kind, there's a huge range of the degree yeah. to which people are self-conscious. And sometimes self-consciousness turns out to be a pathology, you know, where people are immobilized because they're so aware of what they're doing. You know, so there's a way in which self-consciousness can also be an impediment and get in the way of dealing with the physical frame, you could say. So, so do you think that the free will exists all the way up from the electron to the human and it's just basically a function of, you know, how likely it is that it's going to do something unpredictable? Or do you think that when we add that ability to reflect that that's where free will comes into play? I would say that free will is inherent potential within consciousness, but that depending on the depending on the relationship you could say it's like the context basically a node of consciousness is within a context of its environment and so we have very complex environments to navigate and on a certain level when you get down to the atomic level the environment is perhaps a bit simpler in other words an atom's environment is a set of usually I think it's 92 other possible elements that it might come in contact with. And even then it's typically a far smaller number of elements that it will typically come into contact with. So even though we've been able to synthesize whatever, I can't remember what the number is, 120 some odd different elements, the ones that actually exist, uh, naturally, I believe it's something like the 92. And then the ones that are prevalent are just a handful, really. So in a certain sense, atoms are dealing with an environment that consists of a handful of possibilities. So yeah. that's their reality. 
you know? Uh, we have far more complicated sets of, of environmental mm-hmm. issues to navigate. And so we have to have a consciousness that's capable in order to maintain our existence of, of navigating these complex environments. So I think a lot of it is circumstantial. But I do believe that, yeah, that potential exists and that to some extent it's a reflection of the type of network that's being managed. Because I think of, of consciousness as being, in essence, something that arises as a result of a network mm-hmm. and that there, there's kind of a, uh, a field coherency within a network that forms a central node and that that central node is then sort of the meta-consciousness for the arrangement of the consciousness within it, all the various conscious elements within it. Because if we're going to really say that everything is built from consciousness, then every node within the network is a conscious being. And the thing that defines an entity is that it's an arrangement, a, a, a network, that has a, uh, a central mm-hmm. organizing node, that there's field coherency between the various entities in the network and that there is a center point around which they all organize themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If that's the case, then the characteristics of that central nodal consciousness is going to depend a lot on the arrangement of the network of the subsidiary entities. Mm-hmm. So it, it sounds like basically you're saying it exists all the way down, but as the system gets more complex, more information about what's going on in the environment gets, uh, you know, more diverse and accurate that it becomes more unpredictable what the being or node is going to actually end up doing. And so it's going to seem like as you get from the level of electrons up to humans, that humans are much more free than an electron, though maybe on a fundamental level, it's not really well, different. It's just I, a matter I think of information. Free to choose, perhaps, but free uh, in some sort of uh, existential way, I doubt it. I also think that it's not necessarily more accurate. I think probably less accurate because the more complex a system is and the more complex an environment is, you know, there's so many different points along the way that where the chain can be broken and the correspondence between a signal being sent and received can be confused. Well, if, okay, let's take the example of the fish and the human. So we would say the fish is lower than what the human is on whatever scale we're using here, but the fish is going to not see that the worm is on a hook and the human is. That seems like we're moving towards accuracy as we get more complex. Well, I don't think so. I think just because we can identify on one level of domain what it is that's happening doesn't mean that now that, you know, we're sort of existing on another level of domain that we have any better sense of what's really going on. You know, so we can comment on the world of the fish and say, well, man, if you could only figure out that that hook, I always think about the deer too. It's like, how many times does your type have to get hit by a car before you realize that when the lights are coming like, you know, like just just look both ways before you cross, you know, but they don't. <laughs> you know? uh, yeah. So my sense is that as consciousness develops in its uh, understanding of things and new vistas are opened up, it finds itself in a new world. 
and that quite often the larger the world, because remember, we're all, all humble, right? The larger the world that we start to perceive, the less we know what's going on. So in a certain sense, you could say, as knowledge increases, so does ignorance. <laughs> so is it is it just relative ignorance and that you're no longer aware of a different world, which was ultimately not any more true than the world that you are kind of in now? Or are you saying that as you get less complicated and know less, you're actually closer to the truth of the way things are? Uh, well, of course, the way things are... There's two uh, ways of looking at that. One of them is the subjective sense of what it means to be a particular being. So the way things are... And that's all I yeah, mean. So the subjective way of way things are for a fish, right, is perhaps better known to it than the subjective way of being for a human being at this point, because we know so much that we know that we don't know. And, and mm -hmm. as we kind of you, you could say that on some level civilization is proof that as we increase our understanding we ruin the world <laughs> well, uh, cur our current civilization i would agree with that but i don't think necessarily civilization has to be so ruined. well let's put it this way it seems that you know our current situation civilization is a aggregate of all previous civilizations and the previous civilizations really aren't here anymore to weigh in so they failed <laughs> on some level well right? uh, well let's say that they failed there was supposedly like for example a cataclysm which happened 11,800 years ago which basically wiped out a fairly advanced civilization now that civilization could have turned out much better and more in tune with living on the earth than our current civilization. Oh, that's true. And it's not really, I mean, you can say it's a failure, but if, 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 you know, the entire North American ice caps melted and covered the entire continent with water, I mean, basically a worldwide flood followed by a, an immediate ice age. I mean, what civilization could really survive yeah, that? So it's not, I don't feel like it's really a judgment of that civilization to say that they, were destroyed. Right. I think you're right point. about that, and that, that's a good point. We would hope that any robust way of understanding the world would be something that could uh, survive whatever calamities come our way, but obviously that's not the case. So I think that the catastrophist aspect of this is, is definitely a really good point and something that I wasn't thinking about. But okay, so let's forget about the past civilizations that might have done it a lot better. Let's just say that the the one that we're presently involved in is in essence a global civilization. You know, there's a lot of disagreement within it, but nevertheless, we uh, are all utilizing technology mm -hmm. and uh, the raw materials of the world to try to bring about our outcomes, you know, where we have intentions and we're taking actions based upon our free will in the hopes that it might produce a better world. But we're finding that, well, the world turns out to be far more complex and difficult to manage than we might have thought. You know, we probably should have known better. Um, I'm not sure whether anyone really believed it as that story was being promulgated, but uh, nevertheless, that has been the story. That's sort of the, the narrative that keeps us going. And so the question is, well, could it have been different? And 
is this basically a byproduct of the pursuit of knowledge? You know, the, the, the biblical story of the uh, eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that this is the, the fundamental fall from grace. Well, but I mean, in that story, it's implied that there are, are beings who exist, and it's not just God, who do understand, who, who do have that knowledge and are, are living in a way which is not destructive in the way that humanity has become. So is, is, it, is knowledge a problem or is knowledge for humans a problem? It's a knowledge of the tree of good and evil. What does that mean? I mean, wouldn't you say an angel has that knowledge? Uh, an angel may not care about whether something occurs on the basis. Uh, okay, so again, good and evil have a subjective and a quote unquote objective meaning. So, from the subjective point of view, good is something that is good for you. Evil is something that is not good for you. I've heard it said that the the original terms in Hebrew that were translated as good and evil really meant something more along the lines of advantageous or disadvantageous. So. It's yeah. the knowledge of what one might do in order to gain advantage so that whatever you think mm-hmm. individually is good is you get to enjoy the goods of the world, you could say. Well, all beings with that knowledge tend towards corruption, or is that specific to humans? Well, if you think of it in, in, uh, in kind of a evolutionary biology sense, you could say that if one species takes everything that's good for itself— and avoids all of the evils for itself, what is the impact on the environment? Well, it's destroyed, and then, the, and then that thing is destroyed. Well, you could say that, that a ecosystem relies upon there being niches that are occupied and not overly exploited. So, for example, like the fish that, that bites on the hook if it were, if it had the knowledge of good and evil, it could tell the difference yeah. between the hook and the worm, right? And it would, and some of them do, you know. <laughs> so if you're if you're a fisherman, you know that that fish actually do understand this to some extent. You really got to trick them into it. But basically, a lot of creatures have a limited ability to really navigate what they're going to do in order to make life better for themselves. Right. So. So, so humans humans have a an, an understanding of the past and future to a greater degree than most mm-hmm. other animals, and so it's able to see how things have worked and how things could work, and so that they're going to manipulate their environment they live in to the best advantage of for, for themselves and the people they care about. Right. And I think you're saying that that knowledge will eventually lead to uh, it basically destroying the ecosystem and itself because it's 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 not going to be able to choose in a way that isn't more, I don't know, holistic. But I think that the idea that you're describing, you can have a more holistic understanding and know that despite it seeming like it's to your advantage to manipulate things, everything to your advantage, it's not actually to your advantage to do that because you're going to destroy the environment. And so you will reach a level of balance there. And and yet humans have definitely not done that, but it seems like having the knowledge of good and evil can contain that holistic perspective and therefore balance. But only if that knowledge of good and evil is something that goes beyond the uh, experiencer. Well, not necessarily, because you can understand that the environment needs to exist in order for you to live. So you can can maintain the pure selfishness 
of the individual being wanting to survive and understand that you also need to, you know, not be totally domineering and, you know, just destroying everything for your advantage. But when push comes to shove, there are points where in order for the environment to be maintained, self-sacrifice has to go to some incredible extremes. I mean, the this notion of sacrifice is something that was so built into the original conception of spirituality. It's almost completely ignored nowadays, along with humility. It's just kind of bizarre that that we've developed these spiritual concepts that basically have eliminated the core of the spiritual teachings. <laughs> but, you know, mm-hmm. uh, in order for the order to be preserved, there are times where the sacrifice goes to the point of the ultimate sacrifice. And that's an awful lot to ask of anyone. Is it, though? I mean, if, if you think that you exist beyond this life, like you're not just your body, then whatever you're sacrificing for is going to be your environment. It's kind of going to continue to be your environment. That's right. So it's not really sacrificial. It's just wise. Exactly. I completely agree. But I'm saying it's a lot to ask because we feel as if this existence is the only thing going. It's the same reason why the idea of a universal soul may be appealing and we can understand it to some extent, but the experience that we're having is as if this were the only life, (laughs) you know, it's just, it's built into the cake. So it's really difficult and not trivial to get beyond that. I mean, the, the, but it is possible. Don't you, wouldn't you agree? I do think it's possible. I mean, I feel like I would make decisions. I, I believe that I am not my body and that what I, what happens to this world matters to me after I'm dead. And therefore, it's very easy for me to make decisions which seem self-sacrificial to other people. But from my perspective, it is completely selfish. Again, it's going to depend an awful lot on the environmental circumstances. And on some level, we don't really know how we're going to behave until we're confronted with the situations that put us to the test. So, (laughs) you know, I think uh, one of the things that Alexander Solzhenitsyn talks about, who is... uh, a Russian who was in the gulags in the Soviet era, is that it was just amazing the way that people would respond to the conditions that they found themselves in, which were quite often some of the worst that you could imagine. And that some people Mm -hmm. would in some ways even unexpectedly uh, rise to the highest level of their humanity and others would descend to the furthest depths. Mm -hmm. And, And a lot of it had to do with the degree to which they were able to uh, control themselves and to see the, the goodness in not getting what you want. You know, th- this I think is beautifully represented in the trigrams. I don't know if we've discussed the trigrams much. I have a terrible memory. So, um, okay. So, just before we go into the trigrams, I, I just want to make sure we have context about where we are so that we don't forget and get lost. So, basically, what is your what is your uh, sense of what the context is for this branch of the conversation? I think that uh, what we're struggling with is a sense of what the potential is, given the arrangement that we're in. So we're clearly conscious beings in a universe that appears to be more complex than we can really manage. So we 
are in the context of a endeavor, a civilization endeavor to mm-hmm. control nature as much as possible. And what appears to be happening is that despite our best efforts, things keep slipping past our controls. And we end up with things that are either out of control or we end up with a system that's oppressive and that no one would want to live under. And do you think that's specific to the human situation or that's specific to any being that has the knowledge of good and evil? Well, I think it's probably difficult to live under any circumstance. You know, any any living being is typically going to have pretty much a similar type of prospect. They're going to be stretches, long stretches of time that are difficult, fraught with difficulty. And there will be little glimpses of light here and there punctuating that. My sense is that even in our nearest relatives like the primates, that life is, it has its joys, but there are oppressive hierarchical elements to the social groupings, and it can be very brutal at times, and uh, one can end up in really difficult situations that are not fun to deal with at all. But there's there's definitely situations which are much worse more of the time and situations which are much better more most of the time. So there's definitely a, a spectrum here. And so let's say out beyond human, you know, to other species on different planets who have the knowledge of good and evil, who don't necessarily have the same difficulty that we have with it and therefore are able to balance. Well, but we can't speak to that. You know, we can only speculate on that. I know that there's some people who say that they're in contact with, you know, the, the visitors, but. Well, okay. But if we need to, if we need to remove that, I don't feel like it's necessary. I mean, we could just talk about with, with humans on a human scale, there's definitely people who are doing better most of the time and the people who are doing pretty bad most of the time. And so there's already that scale. Now, if, if aliens exist, then obviously that extends up into that probably well beyond the top human threshold, I would guess, but. Yeah, I don't know. It seems like there definitely is a scale and a way to improve your situation. So it's not true that everything's just blah and struggle and exactly the same no matter what being yeah. you are. And I think that, you know, those of us who are still engaged in life are continually trying to figure out, well, am I adopting the best strategy to deal with the circumstance that I'm in? And it's working. I mean, from my perspective, it works. Like things have definitely got better for me as I'm doing that. There's no doubt that we have an influence and that that influence can significantly change the experience that we're having. But I also think that there's no necessary connection between intention and outcome and that the the law of unintended consequences tends to play a role in just about everything that we do. So we have to remember, I mean, I think that's the humility in the whole thing, the idea that somehow or another we're going to come up with a strategy that's going to work under any given circumstance or that we are all the masters of our destiny. I think that's really not the way it works. Well, that wouldn't be any fun. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, you have to have a degree of randomness in every game, right? Uh, If we're all completely uh, according to some rule book and if you just simply follow the rules, it it will lead to a particular destination. That would be a pretty boring game, right? So... There yeah, is definitely totally. this element of chance and uh, 
and there's always this this huge realm of the unknown that also comes into play because you know we're doing our best to understand things as we go along and to to play our hand accordingly but there's an awful lot that we don't understand about the story and there's always another frame there's always another larger picture there's always some detail too uh, which reminds me of something that I wanted to say earlier, and I don't even know if it's related, but that because I remembered, I want to just say it briefly. Because we were talking about the the choice of uh, of the particles, the atoms, the molecules, and whether or not they could decide to behave differently. There's a couple of really interesting passages in some of the ancient scriptures that say things like, like one of the things that that that. Uh, that I remember in a Taoist phrase is there's, you know, there's the day of reckoning where all of a sudden the configuration of the stars changes, you know? So, so the potentiality for there being a major restructuring, mm-hmm. um, the kind of the catastrophist model that you were, uh, alluding to earlier, where all of a sudden everything is completely different and whatever civilization was trying to do is just completely interrupted, if not destroyed, you know, I think of that potential as happening on a lot of different scales. So on some level, the largest arrangement of things is determined by the relationship within the smallest things. So if for all, all of a sudden the, the, the basic behavior of the particles changed even a little bit, you could imagine that the whole freaking universe would change. So I think on some level that that's what we're really talking about when we're talking about the mind of God, that mm-hmm. if everything in the universe is experiencing and there is a kind of field coherency to the entire universe and there's a central node, which is the root experiencer of things, if the aggregate of all of that, because in our bodies, we are the root experiencer for all the network of the various cells and you know different conscious entities that make up the body. And we have a distinct message about how things are going on. When you feel like shit, you feel like shit. Mm -hmm. You know, all the cells in the body feel like shit, and then you feel like shit, and then you're going to make an adjustment. You're going to do something differently if you're still really interested in being in the game. And I think that there's a good chance, I'm not saying Mm -hmm. this is true, I'm saying this is what makes sense to me, there's a good chance that that's basically the same story with God, that God is the is the one who is getting all of the messages from all of the other experiencing beings. And if, if the whole thing feels sick or ill, that a major adjustment will be made and the whole story will change. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I could see even the earth as, as a node in itself, just getting sick with the situation. Exactly. Yeah. uh, You could go to a galactic scale. You could go to a universal scale or, you know, if you want to go to the ultimate, I, I don't know, ideal or form. I don't know if it actually is an absolute thing or if it's just a a pattern that repeats fractally throughout the universe, but God, basically the, the root stack uh, in put in, I guess, computer Mm -hmm. terms of, of everything, the thing that exists in every single frame, but every frame is actually distinct yet. This thing is, you know, common. Yes. And, And so you could say that that is the universal soul. Right. And that each individual node mm-hmm. is an individual soul. Right. And that um, the message from the universal soul to the individual soul is the spirit. OK, so good. We're back to spirit. I like that. OK, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, I know that that's where that's kind of where we were talking about going before, yeah. and I, I I wanted to make sure we we uh, look at it a little bit, but but I have a question for you. So you were talking about how we could think of the Earth now as being a node which in and of itself uh, may be kind of ill, let's say. So one of the things that I've wondered about is, well, if that's the case, is that a symptom of a larger phenomena happening in the universe and we're just suffering because of that? Or are we responsible for that having occurred and as a consequence, there's now the potential for that to spread on some level. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's sort of a question of ideology. Ah, uh, well, uh, yeah, I get, I get what you mean. Uh, is the Earth sick? Is the Earth sick? And therefore, we're sick. And the Earth is sick is because of the environment it exists in. It's just the situation at the moment. Or is there something wrong with humanity and ultimately it's our fault? The Earth's fine. And if we get annoying enough, the Earth's just going to shrug us off and then everything will be fine again. Yeah. And um, I mean, I would lean more towards the, the latter. And but I, I don't think it's necessarily something wrong with humanity, at least in our original form. Of course, this gets into a much bigger topic, but and I don't think we should go into it. But I'm, I would just say I think we were I think we were tampered with at some point. And you know, ever since then, we have been in this non-adapted state, which is basically sort of like a virus, or, or we have a virus, and therefore we're acting like a virus to our host planet. So, I mean, I, that's that's the situation I see humanity in. I don't think there's anything wrong with the planet. So how would we distinguish between, uh, I, mean, I mean, you could say that the source of that virus is the understanding that we developed of the natural world. The, the I don't I don't think that that's true. I think that the understanding is not the problem. I think the it's like there's something missing. There's like we had something removed, like a, a certain we had a channel on our radio where we were connected to something which gave us a lot of meaning, and that channel was turned way down, and most people don't hear it. Humanities, the human, the human body at the moment is incapable of broadcasting that back to the spirit. And so essentially we just go around seeking this to fill this hole with, you know, things like sex and drugs and, and uh, food and, and yeah, that's essentially why we're destructive. We just are not in tune with something which is important. Well, let's talk briefly about the trigrams. Um, okay. Cause I think that this is a, it's just a really beautiful way of being able to to talk about these things. Unfortunately, it's talking about a visual set of symbols on a podcast. So there's an awkwardness to that, but I'll put in, in, the, in a, a link in the description uh, places where you can take a look at what we're talking about here. But basically, there are two arrangements of the trigrams. The trigrams are three lines, either solid or broken. Together, uh, two trigrams make up a hexagram, which is what you're talking about when you talk about the I Ching. But uh, Prior to the I Ching, there were these two arrangements. One is called prenatal and the other one's called postnatal. And in the prenatal arrangement, you have balance of all the trigrams. Each trigram is balanced by its opposite. So if you have three solid lines, then across from it is three broken lines. And if you have one solid and two broken above, mm -hmm. then across from it is one broken and two solid above. The postnatal is not arranged like that at all. It's, uh, mm -hmm. it's, it seems like kind of a jumble. And until you decode it, it doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense. I mean, you, until you decode the prenatal, it doesn't make much sense, even though it is balanced. It just, you can see that it's balanced. Now, at the top of the trigram mm -hmm. is the focal point, 
there's a there's a Chinese phrase that says the emperor always faces south. So in the northern hemisphere, if you want to see the light, if you want to follow the progression of the sun, you're facing south, right? And so at the top of the trigram of the arrangement of the mm-hmm. trigrams is you could say the goal. It's where the attention is placed. So in the prenatal, heaven is the goal. It's at the top, and in the postnatal, fire is at the top. Now fire represents, and I, I could tell you why, but let's not bother with that. I'm just going to say fire represents desire. That's pretty obvious, right? Uh, but literally, it represents desire because a trigram mm-hmm. is an arrangement of the mind in time. So the top and bottom lines are solid. The middle line is broken. And desire is basically about losing the present mm-hmm. because you have an idea from the past, an object that's held in the mind that you want to realize again in the future. So desire is about chasing after an object that you have in your mind to try to get it again or get it for the first time, whatever. It's desire. And that leads and that leads to behavior which acts like fire, which is we think of it as destructive, although it's not purely destructive. It's, I mean, it's the reason the air works in our lungs is essentially because of the fire element. Right. But but of course, you know, an excess of burning will produce a lot of carbon dioxide. <laughs> right. So right. Get, basically the the being, the spiritual being is putting out a lot of energy and therefore influencing change very quickly. Fire is fire is very quick. Yes. So fire is an agent of change. Yes. It's a quick burn. You know, the more the more desire there is, the more everything gets burned through, you could say. So it's the opposite of sacrifice. It's it's uh although it is a kind of sacrifice, right? You have the sacrificial fire. But you're generally right? sacrificing something so, other than yourself. Well, what you're sacrificing is the future. So if if you're operating on the basis of your desires and just feeding your wants all the time, what you're doing is you're sacrificing the future. So that the future can be a certain way. Because, because you're changing the present. So if, if, if you want to preserve something, you can't burn it. But if it's already been here and already left, you already failed in the preservation, then what else do you have to do then to try and right. retain it, regain it? Well, that's why, a lot of, that's why a lot of people are just like, fuck it, let's just uh, have sex and do drugs. But I mean, it is sensible from a certain perspective. I mean, a child may have been raised a certain way and, and it was a good situation and then both of their parents died. And, you know, there's a sense of, oh, that's not a good example because they can't really fix that situation. But let's say they just, they break their arm. It's it's not a bad thing to want to regain. Well, I mean, you could fix that situation in a spiritual way. Right. I mean, it, it, there's the potential, I think, to, to fix any situation, but I think you're right. That indicates, it suggests the situation is going to be far more difficult to put together and make right. Well, I guess I'm just saying it's not necessarily bad to try and regain lost states of goodness. Well, I think it might be a mistake to try to regain a lost state of physical goodness, but I think it's probably the only... Well, a broken arm, it's good to try and your arm well yeah but I, I think if you're talking about a a like if you're talking about a physical frame that has been ruined right on some level like it just it's not working the way it, it, it there's no way of it ever being the same thing that it was before right so if you're talking about a an yeah. ecosystem like 
I think that there is a very, very limited chance that we're going to be able to restore the natural world to what it was before all of this interruption came. So all this effort to like get rid of invasive species and stuff like that, it's like that just seems like an uphill battle that will not really go anywhere. It's going to be a different configuration. Yeah, that documentary you you pointed me towards was basically saying that whole idea of reaching some balanced state is not actually real. It's just constantly yeah changing. It's always going to be a different situation. Now, you have to wonder whether the studies that they did at that time, and what we're referring to is the third section of Adam Curtis's uh, All Watched Over by Machines of Love and Grace, which is an incredible documentary. I think you, you have to watch it like 10 or 20 times before you can really grasp <laughs> exactly what's going on there. And even, you know, I've watched it many times and I listen to it. I don't even watch it anymore. I'll just listen to it while I'm working sometimes. And the things that come out of it each time, the number of connections, it's just incredible. And I don't necessarily agree with the whole point of view that's put forward there, but you kind of wonder like, would the experiments, let's say that you could do an experiment before the Garden of Eden issue, right? Before the fall and before we ate the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, would those experiments have had the same outcome? In other words, is the disruption to nature so profound and that it predates industrialization. I mean, at the time that those experiments were being, were being done in the 70s, we already had significant encroachment on the natural world. And so like the balance between the wolves and the antelope or whatever it was that they were observing in that park that was way more dynamic than they had anticipated. You got to wonder if, if it weren't for the disruption of the urban centers and what have you, would it perhaps be less dramatic the kinds of fluctuations mm -hmm. that we saw. So I'm not going to say that that's necessarily an inherent aspect of nature, although it does seem that on some basic level, the law of thermodynamics always suggests that the material configuration of the physical domain is converting from one state to another and that energy is being recycled through that, but it doesn't yeah. have the opportunity to really continually maintain itself right at least a specific node of energy is if it is turned into a, a new state like if you burn someone's body it's never that energy is never going to return to that the body that it was exactly and so in essence you could say that life is a metabolic process on planet earth that's that's converting and and transforming the material of the earth you know, there are some ancient uh, cosmological stories. I, I think some of the uh, Native Americans uh, and South Americans have stories that are basically like, well, uh, the universe was this big being and it died. And then all of these things started living off of the body of the dead universe. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. like so there's mm -hmm. that kind of image of what's going on. And maybe that is sort of what's going on, you know, uh, neat. Well, I kind of actually, I feel like that fits into the, what I was describing earlier. It's like, like I said, humanity seems to have lost connection to something. And yeah. so if you, if you were to lose that connection, it would seem like it had died, but that doesn't necessarily mean it, it was, it died. And right. yeah, I would agree you would then have to become basically vampiric, but it doesn't mean we can't retain, like regain that connection. And in that case, the knowledge of good and evil wouldn't be a bad thing and we wouldn't be destructive with it. Really, the problem is the lost connection. It depends on, yeah, it depends on whether or not the frame is the individual soul, the, the uh, psychic ego that's involved in the drama of the 
of the body, or if it's a frame of the universal soul of all of existence, that's kind of represented in, in like an Aquarian sensibility in, in the, uh, but, in those but regaining that connection makes those two things not different. Do you know what I mean? Well, there is a distinction and you can say, yes, that when you consider things within the frame of the universal soul, those distinctions disappear. But to some extent that's ignoring reality because the fact of the matter is that most beings will continue to operate as if the individual being were the thing that mattered. So we're dealing with a, you could say, egocentric set of entities which make up the ego of the universe, can we say? I don't know. You know. Yeah, but, but I think that that's true. But I, I think if you had that connection, like in the same way that I can know that it's maybe advantageous for myself, for me to sacrifice myself because I know I'll continue to exist in whatever environments my effects had, it still seems like you can, if you have that connection, your actions can primarily, your choices can primarily come from that more global perspective of what I do to someone else yeah. I'm doing to myself. Yeah, and that's that's exactly what's represented in the trigram arrangements. The, the postnatal is a representation of the drama that happens within the ego-oriented, individuated self mind. And then the prenatal is a representation of the potential that occurs with the connection to the capital S self, the, the, where one is free from the drama of the individuated self and sees things from that broader perspective of the inclusiveness of all things. But is there, the prenatal postnatal seems to kind of imply that the prenatal comes first, but it seems like there can be a prenatal-ish type phase, which is post, uh, post postnatal. You know what I mean? It's like returning to that connection, but with the lessons that have been learned. Well, I think that actually the way to think of it is that the prenatal is uh, the unembodied. So the, the natal is the thing which is born into this world, right? And so the thing that is an entity within the world is in an environment, and the environment has demands that are placed upon it in order for it to continue to survive. And that's why the drama of the individuated self exists. The conception of the prenatal is that the unmanifest being, which exists within all things, is the root of existence, is the, the king of kings, is the, the essence of, uh, of spirit, that makes life worthwhile and really good. And so the recognition of that is what allows one to perform sacrifice mm -hmm. and not simply try to get whatever one can to feed the, the physical body, which is uh, inherently temporal and, and, uh, and fleeting. I think that the, the prenatal is a, is, it's not like a sequential thing. And actually this I think relates very nicely to what you just said about the the body of God not being dead, right? Like, uh, how do, I didn't say that very well. Um, that the idea that we are in a universe where God is dead is to some extent really just an artifact of the perspective. And, and so it's the recognition of the unity of experience 
that mm-hmm. brings God to life, you could say, because because we're in a physical frame. Yeah. And so the whether or not God shows up here has to do with whether or not the beings recognize the existence of God. Yeah. It's that simple. And, and that's basically what I'm describing. I'm basically when the prenatal, then there's the postnatal. And then I guess the phase that I'm describing is the combination of the two. I mean, you still have the physical world and the, and the, yes. and the being who exists in the physical world. But yes. more dominant, or at least, you know, balanced, is the understanding of the fact that this is all temporary and there's something more primary and real than, than yeah. your immediate concerns. And, and the physical frame itself. Yeah. The, the Taoists have a wonderful term for what you're talking about there. They call it the yin convergence, which is, it's, it's kind of akin to saying uh, before enlightenment chop wood, carry water mm-hmm. after enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. Yeah. You know, so the yin convergence is basically like, okay, having gained some depth of understanding about the world beyond, about the prenatal, about the, the spirit and the source of uh, conscious essence, how do we return to ordinary life and do the work of the spirit, you could say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's, that's really kind of the big question. I think that is the spiritual question. If we believe that this is a living conscious universe and that our actions are significant and that free will is a gift given to us, then what is the best use of that will? How do we, how do we make a future that's worth living for all of the living beings in existence. You know, what is that? I mean, it's, that's kind of the Buddhist thing. It's like the Mm -hmm. Bodhisattva comes to live in this world, to free all beings from unnecessary suffering, let's say. Mm -hmm. Right. Because that is really the, the byproduct of the actions that we take based upon our free will, the choices that are made accumulate into the reality that beings mm-hmm. have to live in. But if, if we have that connection to the, to the prenatal, then we won't cause all the problems that humanity is currently causing. I mean, of course, like you said, just said, there will still be some problems. You're not going to cause solve suffering altogether, but it's definitely not going to be what we have today. Well, there, there's some interesting uh, passages about this. There's a text called Understanding Reality by Cheng Po Chuan that's very difficult to understand, but it's really, really worth the effort. And one of the things that's discussed is as you gain understanding, the risk of making a false step becomes ever greater. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And, and so... <laughs> I, I should look up the, the passage and, and try to find it because it's amazing, an amazing passage. And I think it's very true that, that you can become very proud of yourself when you start to realize things. <laughs> you yeah. know? And so it is a slippery slope of, uh, of falling back into, in some senses, an even worse ego-oriented state of being, 
You know, I, I think that's something that's reflected in the Hindu concept of sattva, the gunas, the material modes of nature. You have rajas, the desire. You have tamas, the ignorance. And that's what people are typically stewing in. And then you have sattva, which is this, oh, I realize my ignorance. I realize my desire. I'm going to pursue enlightenment, you know, and you get very mm -hmm. proud and excited of yourself because, you know, now you're enlightened and you have all these wonderful ideas. <laughs> you know, it's like. It's, so what's it's, the lesson there, though? Should we not go on that that ride then? Like, would you would you just say we should stay back at some previous state? Well, I, I don't think it's it's a. It's that binary. I think what it involves is absolute diligence on what is really going on within your consciousness. But if it's continuing to get more complicated and more risky, the more that you learn, and you're, I think you are someone like me who is going to continue to learn, you're basically guaranteeing that it's going to fail. And the farther along you get, the worse that failure is going to be. Ah, so is okay, it really so worth it? Here's where we get into, I think, uh, the primary activity, you know, whether, whether we like it or not. So the tendency is to want to feel that we can apply deepening understanding to some kind of a design and that we will be able to uh, engineer our way into the future. But mm -hmm. the, the technique that's used in order to move from the individuated postnatal desire-ridden state of being to connection with the prenatal uh, spiritual mode of being is one of thought negation. The process is literally letting go of the designs that we have for how to manage the future. Well, at least the designs that come in the form of thinking. I feel like those designs... I mean, if in my experience, those designs are not primarily thought. Well, uh, I would say that design is always a thought because, you know, you have the design, then you have the implementation. So, you know, maybe it's just a terminology thing. But I would say, yeah, within the realm of thought, we're talking about the realm of thought. There's obviously things that need to be done, you know, carry wood, chop water. And there's a lot of tasks like that, right? So all of the things that need to be done in that way, beautiful. But the idea that we're going to be able to create a roadmap and that it's going to have certain specifications and that we're going to basically figure out um, a plan and make it happen. I think that those are always ill-fated. Well, you it know, seems like you're talking about creation itself. I mean, the chopping wood, carrying water is kind of just maintaining the status quo and then starting on some big grand project of creating like a new form of free energy or something like that would be you know, some extreme well, in a thermodynamic universe, huge project, which are you going to, in a thermodynamic universe, the status quo is never maintained. And it doesn't matter how much they try to hold on to it. It's always going to slip away. Well, I, we're, I'm talking about scale here though. So the person who's carrying wood and, and no, yeah, Chopping water, carrying <laughs> <laughs> the person who's doing that <laughs> is pretty much not changing much. They're, they're not trying to change the world the way the world is. But the someone who's embarking on this big grand project of creation of bringing something new into the world is it's it's much different than that. And yeah, it's, it's there's lots of unforeseen consequences, and there may be some bad things that come out of it. And, and depending on how 
like how much they really want to do here, it could turn out to be really bad, but that doesn't necessarily mean that this act of creation, not, not this act, but the act of creation is inherently going to turn out badly. Well, I, I think maybe we have a disagreement about that, and I'm not entirely sure, but I, I think it's worth trying to probe this. When you're chopping wood and carrying water, you're not just maintaining the status quo. You're doing things that are necessary. You know, like if you don't chop the wood, then you're not going to have the fuel necessary to make it through the winter, right? If you And you have to carry the wood die. too, by the way. And the status quo is that you're alive. What's that? The status quo is that you're alive. And so unable to maintain that, you have to chop the wood, carry the water. But, but, from a prenatal point of view, there is no status quo, and you're not going to be alive for long at all. You know, so what you're maintaining is something that's like a, a flickering flame, you know, on a, on a short candle. Sure, but that's still maintained, despite the fact that it's going to go yeah. out, it's still maintained. And then I'm using this as in reference to the, the other one, where someone's trying to change the world, the entire world. And yes, that's temporary as well, but when we're comparing the two examples... There's definitely a distinction. There's a scale. Well, here. What I would say is that the status quo is the result of the unforeseen uh, byproducts of the plan that is now uh, turned into an ordeal, and that that's hubris. That that hubris is you have an idea about how things should be, and so you make your best efforts. There's a different amount of hubris in the situation where the chopping wood and carrying water, as opposed to the, the, the big plan to make it a free energy. Well, the question is like, how much hubris is okay? Let's yeah. say like hubris, I'm gonna use a metaphor. It, let's say you have a glass of champagne and a glass of shit. It's like, okay, well, how much shit is okay to put in the champagne and it's still drinkable? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Uh, well, the point at which you're gonna get sick or taste it, I suppose. <laughs> so that's not much. We don't have room for a hell of a lot of hubris in that yeah. glass. <laughs> but uh, hey, who knows? Wait, we don't know that hubris is as bad as Okay, shit. that's definitely the question. That's what we got to zero in on. It's like, how bad is hubris and what actually constitutes hubris? You know, because, okay, here we are in an, an extremely complex universe. We have seen over and over and over again the catastrophic consequences of our designs and and we've been ignoring some of the basic tasks. You know, it's like just living where I live, one of the most frustrating things is we're a region that's at incredibly high risk of catastrophic wildfire. Mm. And, and there is dead wood everywhere, you mm -hmm. know? And, <laughs> and it's like, all you really gotta do is pick up the dead wood. <laughs> and, and burn it. You know, it's like, it's kind of that simple. Basically, mm -hmm. yeah, okay, take down the dead trees too. That would be good, you know? It would be also great if we would stop taking out the big trees and leaving all the little shit. That's mm -hmm. really a bad idea, but that's what they do because that's where the money is. So we really should be doing it the other way around. But on the most basic level, it's like, let's just collect up the dead wood, burn it off, take down the standing dead, get rid of some ladder fuels, and it would change the whole, you know, and, and some of that work is being done. So is hubris basically the problem with, the basic problem with hubris is that it makes us ignore the things which are essential but are 
I don't know, boring? Well, in a way, I think, yeah, it's true. I think life is simple, really, when it comes down to it, and that our real job was to take care of this place. You know, instead of having these grand designs and, like, wanting to build the ultimate Tower of Babel, let's say, <laughs> you know, it seems like that's that's kind of the me- the the, yeah. the mold. That's yeah. the pattern. You know, there are these various projects that human beings get all wrapped up in when really all we got to do is take care of the gift that we were given. But but we're in a difficult situation now. You know, we're we're really out of balance with the natural world. And so it's almost inconceivable for people like a lot of people who don't have work. It's like, yeah, you can go out and pick up some sticks in the woods, but they don't want to do it. And, And you can't. Yeah. No, you got to go to the grocery store, then you got to come home and make dinner and you got to take care of the baby. And then your wife's like, Hey, you're not paying any attention to me. And you don't even have time to do your own, you know, pay yeah. any attention to yourself, like just relax. So yeah. who's going to go out and fucking pick up wood? So wood I think that, course? you know, there, there is a interest in re in rethinking the way that we're managing things. And some people are, uh, have a far more holistic frame that they're trying to incorporate into the actions that we take. And I think that forestry practices are starting to be like that. Uh, there is this kind of, and, and we're actually seeing some pushback too, because uh, one of the things that they've wanted to do is to allow things to burn because there is kind of a natural fire pattern. And if we had allowed things to burn through certain areas, particularly out in, yeah. the, in, the, uh, in the forested lands, then we wouldn't have the accumulation of the underbrush. But now people are really upset because there's so much smoke during fire season. So now they're trying to like go back to full fire suppression mm-hmm. action. And it's a, it's a tricky situation. You know, it's like once things really get out of balance, the correction is not simple. So, and it is really terrible in the smoke, you know, in the f- fire seasons where things really burn a lot and they let them burn, the smoke is... It's like it, you, you feel like you're living in a post-apocalyptic movie. So, yeah, I know what you mean. I, where we had that problem up where I live too. Right? It seems like the the inherent problem in this situation, though, is just that the humans choose to live in places where this is a problem, and then just like rising sea levels, which is a totally natural thing to happen over time, the rising and lowering of, of the ocean, like the problem is not that that happens. The problem is that we choose to live on the coast and we get so invested in cities, which are on the coast that if like Seattle were to drown, the entire economy of the world mm-hmm. would probably feel it, you know, very drastically. So really the problem is that we've built this castle on sand. Right. Well, that's the whole thing is that the physical frame is a castle on sand. Uh, that's the nature of of physical objects of structures you know structures well, ultimately but you but but within the context of humanity there is a better situation i mean if you're talking about hunter gatherers who could probably survive any cataclysm and are probably the only reason humanity is still here because they're the only people who could have survived a cataclysm they're just wandering around and, and adapting to the environment as it goes. And yeah, the, the physical environment is still very temporary, but it's in that situation, humanity is much less temporary than if if we were, you know, if a hundred percent of us were all Seattleites, basically, you know, just totally dependent on the system. Well, 
I'm not sure that I understood what you just said there. Could you say that again differently? Well, I feel like I gave the example of that we built, our current civilization is built on sand. You know, I mean, the, the oceans will go up, they'll go down. There's places where there's fires. We have big cities there and we have to do all this weird, unnatural stuff to try and save ourselves. But there, and then I said, so, so it's, you know, it's temporary. And you're like, well, yeah, but the physical environment is just temporary. And I'm like, yeah, that's true. That's inherently true. But there is a difference between the people who live in cities and hum- humans who are able to, you know, hunter-gatherers who live in the environment, they can move around, they can do whatever they need to adapt to the environment. So I just wanted to keep you from going to the extreme and saying the environment is temporary. Yes, that's true, but but there still is a difference between these two modes of human, humans living. That's really interesting. I think there's something in there that we need to tease out of it. When a species is in a relative balance with its environment, its need to modify it is less. And, and as environmental pressures come to, to bear, the mm-hmm. effort on the part of the species to, uh, to secure its place is going to increase. So that's, you could say that's reflected in, in the story of the fall from the Garden of Eden and it's also something that seems to be evident from the kind of pattern of civilization and technology. Um, so you could say that the behavior of the species is to some extent a byproduct of the phase that it's in with respect to the energy requirements that it has and the, uh, the, the phase of that energy depletion. So if you're going to kind of look at his overall thermodynamic model, a species has a certain set of things that it can utilize as an energy source, and in the process of that utilization, it converts it into effluence, which is no longer usable. So on some basic level, there is an, a trajectory towards crisis, and that trajectory is in the, the crisis is intensified uh, when there is more demand placed upon a dwindling resource. But it's not necessarily a crisis at all times. It's just a crisis when you have your effluence has exceeded what the environment can, you know, process, basically. I mean, plants are going to turn our CO2 into oxygen, but if we're putting out too much CO2, then that's not going to happen. And that's when we're on the path to destruction. Well, you could say what it is is that once you realize the situation – you know, those people who are tapped into uh, the various metrics that allow them to see the relationship between the species and the resource, uh, then it's a looming crisis that's ever present, even as things are uh, kind of humming along undisturbed. And then eventually what happens is that you have segments that are eventually pushed into the crisis zone. Uh, and, you know, you could say that that's basically... What happened? What, what's happening around the world right now? That mm-hmm. uh, more and more populations are being pushed ever further into the crisis zone. So, uh, the you could so in that model, that way of looking at it, you could say that the behaviors are in essence driven by that inexorable fact of the conversion of energy from a usable to unusable state, depending upon how the species is set up. And then what what seems to happen is that you get a a basis for another cycle. So whatever the effluence is becomes sort of the raw material for the next 
generation of species. Uh, and that's why you have these extinction events type of thing. You know, so in deep geological history on the planet, we've had a number of mass extinction events. And it's probably for reasons something along those lines. So I would say that, that most of the things that we're doing are reactions to these very, very large cycles that we're kind of caught within, whether we recognize them or not. And that the busyness, the business, the intensity of activity necessary in order to maintain some of these things gets to the point where it's extremely difficult to start to contemplate a prenatal spiritual point of view. Yeah. That, that the involvement in, in the activity to chop wood and carry water is overwhelming and, and blocks out the light, you could say. Mm-hmm. And that's that's materialism. You know, that's the the uh, absolute conviction that the only thing that's real is the physical frame, and that we have to do whatever we can to preserve it. Even though those who study the behavior of the material know full well that you cannot preserve it; it's continually transforming into something else. <laughs> and that mm-hmm. something else is typically relatively alien to what it was that you thought you were trying to preserve when you were busily chopping wood and and uh, carrying water or chopping water and carrying wood. I think both of those are also uh, important tasks. (laughs) Oh man. How did we get here from free will? (laughs) I don't know, but it's really, it's, I feel like we're still just scratching the surface on some level that, uh, this is really an incredibly fruitful, uh, way of discussing a lot of different things. And, and it comes down again to, well, okay, here we are in this situation. What is the choice that we're going to make about how we're going to live? You know, a lot of it has to do with the, the frame, the way that we see things. So conceptual frame is extremely important in determining the behavior that will then influence the physical frame. And that, I think, is the subject of the conversation. It's, it's always a question of, how can we see things as clearly as possible? And what does it suggest that we end up doing with our time and energy? And I'm not saying that I know the answer to those questions at all. I, I really don't. I, I just think that mm. at least the first step is to try to see things as clearly as possible. And that's why I think these conversations are really worthwhile. And this podcast is, is still worth doing. I think so, for sure. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I grew up thinking about stuff like this and always thinking, well, the world will be fine because people can always think on this level and talk about these things. And, um, you know, it's always kind of disappointing to find that almost no one either wants to talk about these things or is even capable of talking about these things. I guess capable could just mean interested or not, but, um, well, it takes a lot of effort. Yeah, It's actually really, really reassuring. It does take a lot of effort, but it's enjoyable effort. It's like playing tennis. Tennis takes effort, but it's enjoyable. And and this actually, I think this is really important. And I wish that more people were having conversations like this. And so, I mean, you're one of the few people in my life who I feel like can come even remotely close to having a conversation like this. And so I I really appreciate it. And um, I'm really happy that you're doing this podcast. Well, thank you. I feel exactly the same way. It's... I feel really fortunate to have uh, to have found you and and the handful of others who are willing to uh, come onto the podcast mm-hmm. and talk about this kind of stuff with me. Um, and so, 
let's continue to do it. Thanks for listening. We look forward to serving you again soon. In the meantime, remember, turn that thing over a few times before you pick it up and take it home. <laughs>